Today's episode of Your Stories is sponsored by Overcast, a better podcast app than whatever you're using right now, unless you're using Overcast. Get Overcast for free on the App Store. Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your Stories, to me, has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there, no questions asked. Uh, I've heard stories about all those things. Uh, maybe not not a lot of push-ups. I maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups. The Nerdalogs is group therapy meets Toastmasters. I know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm, supportive environment by other nerds just like me. And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience one month, and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story, and their story is your story, and then it's our story, and then it's a podcast, so it's everybody's story, and then you've shared it, and gosh, that's great, huh? And even if you don't think you're a nerd, you probably are. It's easily the most Midwestern thing I've ever been a part of. Hey everybody, I'm Eric Arnault and this is the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories podcast. This week, we're back with the second half of a roadshow we recorded in Ava, Illinois, a lovely town about five hours south of Chicago. It happens to be the childhood hometown of my best friend, Ben Rathert, who put this show together and even hosted the evening. In this half of the show, you'll hear from Ben's friends Tony Baker, Jeremy Connie, and myself, plus music from me, and a special surprise performance from Ben, Tony, and last episode's Kyle Triplett that they put together to celebrate my birthday earlier this month, and that I literally knew nothing about. I think you'll be able to hear the shock in my voice. Uh, man, what a time. Uh, Ben's one of the best dudes ever. And as it happens, this episode's coming out on his actual birthday. So if you know Ben, make sure to show him some love today. He definitely deserves it. Now, this podcast will be back next week with some more archival dives that should be pretty fun. And we've got a couple sweet live shows coming up at the end of July we'll be announcing soon. For now, enjoy the heck out of this. Welcome back. Woo! Round two, homebrew, playthrough. Eric's got a song lined up from someone who I met before, someone very important. This is me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) This is an Eric original. He's 85 years old. this song uh, is, was actually written by, or I should say, was performed by a guy who's from Percy, Illinois. His name is John Jeremiah, a uh, band being called Aliota Hayes and Jeremiah, and he is the Jeremiah of that group. Also, probably the Jeremiah from Jeremiah was a bullfrog, because like this guy made the rounds. He was everywhere. Did not ever hit it big in the music scene in the 1970s, uh, with the exception of this one song that uh, Eric's getting lined up for you here. Um, I'm gonna need some background. Ooh, you're doing great, man. I met John once. He was about 62. I was at my friend Candace's wedding, 
And my mom said, hey, that's John Jeremiah over there. I said, I don't know who that is. And she says, you know, you know, uh, you know the song, you know, Elio and Hayes and Jeremiah. I'm like, of course I know them. Um, so why don't you go talk to him? So I did go talk to him. I said, okay, so are you who I think you are? He said, yeah, that's me. No big deal. Um, he talked about being on the scene. He talked about when he met Janis Joplin. He talked about um, when he, he you know, played in Chicago endlessly, out in Ohio. He was, he was all over the place just endlessly. And he said the best thing that ever happened to him musically. He said he was a piano player forever, just always on the scene. But he was in a bar in the basement on a snowy Chicago night. And he said, I looked over, and who was next to me but Dennis DeYoung. Dennis DeYoung is the pianist from Styx. I know who Dennis DeYoung is. This is the 1970s, everybody. Styx is huge. Uh, but he, he said, you're Dennis DeYoung. He says, I know. You're John Jeremiah. He said, whoa, why do you know who I am? He says, because you're everything I want to be in a pianist. I've watched you. You're amazing. He said that Florida, you know, so that, that a guy who, who could make it so far thought so much of just little old John Jeremiah. So anyway, the song is Lakeshore Drive. I'm going to hand over here. Mr. Roboto by Sticks? <laughs> <laughs>
John Jeremiah back 2012 or so, uh, but uh, I, I just met a friend of his recently. Uh, they, they said they were best. He said they were best friends back in the day. But uh, weird, small world, isn't it? Thank you, Eric. Thank you. Uh, our first speaker, second half, is someone so near and dear to my heart, and he lives at the end of my alley. Uh, he is one of my very best friends. He's somebody that I have drunk a lot of beers with on evenings when the kids are finally asleep. He's a person I've spent time in the woodshop with. He's a person that knows a little about everything. I constantly remark to Nikki about how I've never actually run a project past him. And I said, you know what, I should run this past Tony. Tony always has good ideas for me about whatever I'm building or making up or you know, pretending that I know something about. Um, everybody, Mr. Tony Baker. Thank you, sir. It's odd, like, this is, you know, gonna touch a little bit on the fact that I am a man of, I'm not sure if, if the word is like, if I'm incredibly indecisive about things or I just really like to learn or I just have a lot of hobbies, right? So, uh, what I wanted to, I'm not sure if this is a story so much as an editorial, I'm not sure what it is. Uh, <laughs> But I want to talk about what happens like when cognitive dissonance sets in, right? When somebody is not who you think they are, right? So as Ben alluded to, I, I am constantly like turning my life up in some way, right? And I, I always pick up new hobbies. I mean, I've built guitar pedals for Kyle. I've worked in the wood shop with, with Ben and, you know, I, I love to play music. I, I want to play sports. I want to play soccer. I have a million things that I'm always trying to get involved in. Uh, and that is not a new thing for me. It, it goes back as far as I can remember, even into when I was deciding what I wanted to do with my life uh, as a young man. And my very, so the one thing I wanted to do when I grew up, right, was I wanted to build guitars. That was what I wanted to do. Uh, you know, financially, we, I couldn't make that work. Guitar building school in the early 2000s when I graduated high school was, uh, really expensive and my family didn't have the means to provide that for me. Um, so then I, I had the opportunity, I was like, well, okay, I'm gonna do one of two things. I'm gonna apply to this industrial robotics program or I'm gonna do graphic design. <laughs> and I wasn't accepted to the industrial robotics program, so they made my decision for me, right? So <laughs> I started art school, right? And I was gonna do graphic design. I was really excited about it, but at kind of at the end of my uh, first semester, one of my professors pulled me aside and he said, he's like, hey man, you shouldn't be getting bees in intro to color theory? And I was like, well, well I am colorblind. And he's like, oh man. And I am actually incredibly colorblind. Like, I think I got 17 out of 42 on the little plate test that my, my uh, eye doctor gave to me. And he, he basically laid it out to me like this. Look, you can draw, you can draw and design fine, right? But you're talking about having to interact with clients who want specific things, and I'm just worried about your ability to provide that for them. And I agreed, you know, I didn't think that that would be a, a good place for me to be. So I left uh, art school and I went home and decided, oh, I'll enroll in college. And uh, I grew up in Indiana, 
and Indiana University has lots of satellite campuses, so I just decided to enroll and kind of do um, my, my general stuff, and I ended up in an anthropology class, and it was something that was always interesting to me anyway. I used to, on Sunday nights, I always beg my parents to stay up late and like watch National Geographic, and they always send me to bed anyway. Um, so anthropology really clicked with me, and then, so I moved on from a regional campus to the main campus, and I studied anthropology, specifically archaeology, and uh, those of you that know me, I'm an educator now. I was a high school teacher. I work for the State Board of Education now. Uh, but uh, my first career was as an archaeologist. And I wanted to kind of talk to you about archaeology, uh, at least a little bit, because uh, it really kind of influenced the work that I do now. And it's far more mundane than you can ever imagine, right? I think the idea that uh, anthropology or archaeologists are kind of these swashbuckling, uh, and I don't want to say Indiana Jones per se, but you know, cutting through vines in the Mayan jungle to discover something nobody has ever seen before. That is, that is far and away a extremely rare occurrence, right? Particularly with satellites these days. We don't, we don't need people on the ground so much. But, um, so I, I entered into this anthropology uh, program, got particularly close with one professor who became my advisor um, in 2000, 2003. He invites me to do field school, right? So when you train an archaeologist, the way that works is it's essentially on-the-job training, right? It's kind of like an apprenticeship. So I and maybe 10 or 12 other students went to live in a farmhouse on an archaeological site uh, for six weeks over the summer. And we were trained by my advisor uh, and a couple of his, the people that work in the archaeological survey. And it was amazing. For me, it was just, I, I knew right then and there that this was going to be like my career. It was something I knew I could do. Right. And I say that knowing that now I no longer do that, but <laughs> it was the thing that I was like really committed to at the time. Um, again, indecisiveness or just I like a lot of hobbies. Uh, so anyway, it, it was really it was interesting. I mean, we are, we're uncovering burials. We are finding full house structures, you know, hearths in place, pottery, like amazing amounts of pottery and as many like lithics, you know, like... Uh, stone tools you can ever imagine. So we find all these amazing things and it just is en engulfed my mind, right? Um, so we come back from field school and a few select uh, people there, they, he invites us to stay on as employees for the archaeological survey as kind of student workers, right? Um, as, and as a side note, this, this kind of camaraderie you build with people that you stay with over a long time, I never went to a summer camp and I don't know if any of you ever went to like, you know, Camp Firewood or anything, right? But... <laughs> I, I never did anything like that, but it's weird how close you grow to people that you're in constant proximity with, regardless of you know your backgrounds and how you may feel about them outside in the outside world. You kind of you you become very um, I don't know. You just you, you you build a camaraderie with them, right? And I actually ended up meeting my wife in, in field school, right? Uh, but you know there were plenty of of raucous nights, right, where people who are 21 years old can go out and buy beer, right? We can start a fire and we can hang out and drink beer and party a little bit. Um, so some of that stuff happened, right? So we go on, and I end up working for the Archaeological Survey for two more years, uh, and I graduate, and it, it's an excellent like part-time job for me, basically. I'm making $15 an hour in 2003, as a, or 2004, as a, you know, a kid who hasn't graduated from college, and I'm pretty happy about that. And then uh, I, at that point, I get married to my wife, and we relocate to Southern Illinois lovely down here, right? I still haven't left, clearly. Uh, <laughs> made it my home. And uh, so we re relocated down here so she can go to graduate school, and I eventually ended up going to graduate school, but 
when I moved down here, I'm like, what am I gonna do? Like, how am I gonna support myself? You know, uh, and I wasn't sure at first, but my first job that I got in Southern Illinois was managing an oil change place, right? Again, what am I gonna do with my life? I still don't know, right? Um, but eventually I decided I'm just gonna do, go do archeology span for a profession, right? And that's a real thing. It's not just academic in nature. There are plenty of academic projects that happen, but by and large, the, the largest amount of employed archeologists are what they call cultural resource managers. Um, and what we did as cultural resource specialists would um, do surveys, right? And kind of, we're essentially just a layer of bureaucracy, right? As, as the wheels of government grind over our history, we're there to kind of put our hands up once in a while. Um, and, and that takes a lot of forms, right? Sometimes it's really interesting, but most of the time it's incredibly boring. So I've spent a year and a half walking, and I, I'm not really exaggerating when I say this, from the eastern edge of Illinois over by Charleston, walking in a straight line from Charleston all the way over to Pitts Field, I believe it is, on the western edge, through cornfields, over roads, digging holes every 15 meters. So, and I was paid handsomely to do that. <laughs> but as you might imagine, as a person who has come out of academic archaeology and thinks, I'm going to find all this amazing stuff, I found almost nothing in an entire year and a half, right? <laughs> so, it was incredibly boring. Plus, I'm like, I'm working for an energy company, and I'm second thoughts about like is this really the like life I want to live you know am I doing the right thing here um, but I, I continue on in that work for a while um, and, and to kind of touch on Kyle's Branson story I, I'd done some contract work for the Forest Service right and I worked in the Mark Twain in several uh, places Donovan I spent some time in Donovan um, and I worked in Branson uh, we were <laughs> so I stayed in Branson for six months right and <laughs> Somebody wants to describe it to me as Vegas without the gambling, or the young people, or the fun, or sex at all, right? Like, so, and I think that's about right, you know, like if I had to say, that, that, that's about Branson in a nutshell. Um, but interestingly enough, so my job essentially at that point was to put on a backpack at 7 a.m., drive two hours to our survey portion and walk all day and dig a hole every once in a while when something looked cool. I was getting paid to hike and it was incredible. I, it was the best job in the world. But the thing was that I was staying across the highway in a Super 8 motel from Yakov Smirnoff's <laughs> theater, right? And I just learned that one of Ben really likes the movie Groundhog Day, right? So <laughs> every morning I would wake up, and here's the thing about Branson, because it's tiny Vegas, they never turn the lights off there. And I would wake up every day, and I would open my blinds like in Groundhog Day, Yakov Shmirnov's face in the spotlights just shining all over, and I was like, one more day, one more day, we're going to do this, it's going to happen, right? So, uh, and I did more work like that, and I, I'm really happy that I got to do some really incredible things. I mean, I've worked on Mississippian mounds, where they found things like, you know, wolf jaws inlaid with silver. Uh, one of the coolest jobs I ever did was, I know, right? It's, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. One of the coolest jobs I ever did was actually in Illinois, uh, in Peoria. So uh, the way this works, and the reason that I had employment in the first place were Section 106 laws. It's a National Historic Preservation Act. Uh, and the way those work is that anytime there's federal money of some sort funneled to you, be that directly from the federal government or through a state organization, you have to follow certain protocols to make sure you're not destroying uh, historical artifacts or anything. Um, and 
So the, does anybody know Peoria well at all? So there was, a, right, yeah. Uh, there was one, a Carnegie Library in Peoria, and it was kind of in a rundown part of town and it wasn't very well taken care of, but they got a grant to modernize and revamp and expand their library to help better serve the people in their area. Well, of course, they did zero groundwork on it, right? And they rolled the backhoe up and they took a big chunk out of the ground and there were bones flying out everywhere. Like, human bones flying out everywhere. Um, because they didn't follow the appropriate protocol. If they had, they would have known that that library was built on the original city cemetery in Peoria, right? So, uh, when Carnegie gave them all that money, they basically took all the headstones off and built the library right on top of the, because it, it was essentially a potter's. It was from the 1830s to 1850s. There were no records of anybody who was buried there. Essentially, anybody could have been buried there. Nobody could make a claim to it. Uh, and they actually found all of the headstones about two blocks away and the original sexton of the cemetery had used them to build the foundation of his home. Oh. So <laughs> there's a house in Peoria <laughs> somewhere where all of the foundation is built with gravestones from the 1800s. Uh, so it's really cool. I got to work on that. We excavated 87 burials and now they reside in a collection in uh, Loyola in Chicago, which is really cool, right? So I, I, I say all this stuff. I, I really enjoyed that career. I ended up going back to graduate school, getting my teaching certification and, and moving into education. Um, but I say that because I was really influenced by my advisor in, in college and he kind of set me off on this path that I just learned so much. I learned about kind of research and what the academic world was about. And he, he had a big influence on me. He came to my wedding, you know, he gives this really cool, he and his wife were just awesome. They gave us this really cool chalk dog for a wedding gift, which is just bizarre, right? Like, I registered for a toaster and you gave me a weird carnival toy from the 1920s. But that's awesome, right? Like, you guys are really interesting people. Um, so I, I, I went to look him up. Uh, a few years ago, maybe two years ago, I went to look him up and I was like, I wonder what he's doing these days. And I don't wanna use his name. But I wonder what he's up to. I wonder how the survey's doing. And I look at the survey and he's nowhere to be found. I was like, what happened to him? You know, like I haven't talked to him in a few years. Where has he gone? So I started doing research and he has started his own firm in Indianapolis. And then he's employed by the state of Illinois in one place. And I was like, what happened to start all this? And I find a, uh, a news article that's accusing him of basically sexually assaulting people during field school. And it just was so strange to me, right? Because I didn't know him as that person. Did, do archeologists party too much? And is it a kind of a, a crazy environment sometimes? Yes, you essentially have transient workers and I can, I mean, they're crazy people I've met. There was a guy who got, almost got kicked out of a hotel because he was fishing in the pond behind the hotel, cleaned the fish in his room and cooked it up. It's just the amount of people you meet there that have a screw loose are crazy high. I, it's like construction workers, essentially, right? So, I mean, it is kind of a, it, there's a little debauchery here and there, but I never expected to read this about the man, and it just has kind of thrown me for a loop. And it has like kind of divided a bunch of people that, that have come up with him. Um, you know, I know another person has, that went to field school with me, has worked for him and is just defending him. He's been cited, you know, he's a fairly well-respected archeologist and he's defending him, you know, uh, tooth and nail. He thinks that this is all baseless accusation. And I think in the climate that we live in now, you know, the whole kind of Me Too era that we live in, what, what do those accusations mean? How, when you listen to them, 
what do you do about it, right? And he was essentially forced out of his job, is now employed elsewhere. But what I'm trying to do is kind of think about is, is the way he was treated, does it jive with my perception of him? And if it doesn't, what do I do to change that, right? Like how do I change the person that I've built him up to be into the person that he actually is? So that's just something that, that I guess I've struggled with. And it's an interesting question about and I don't know if it's like hero worship necessarily, but it's this idea that, that people are fallible and um, you have to kind of take them at their face value when you meet them. But as you learn, grow with people and, and you learn more about them, um, how do you modify what you, what you really understand about a person? So that's my story for tonight. That's all I have. Just uh, I guess I leave you with the question. Thank you. Thank you, buddy. That was great. Um, as, as you were building, I was right there with you. Uh, you know, just like the, the few people in my life I've been exposed to when it, uh, it turns out that I didn't really know who they were because I don't actually know them in all facets of their life. Um, you know, people in my personal life, but then the one to mention now is Mr. Garrison Keeler. Uh, I just want to cry sometimes. Don't have heroes, the person I know said, Katie Johnson Smith, you're listening to this. Um, but, you know, <laughs> anyway, anyway. Uh, yeah, right. I, I'm excited. But anyway, the, the, it's, it's amazing that it took this long to catch on, but the fact is, it's just generally people don't make this stuff up, you know? It's generally true, these, these accusations. Anyway, um, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. Um, all right, our next speaker. We have two left. This half, this guy, this guy. One of my oldest and best friends. I've known him for forever. The last time, if you hit the Your Stories archives, you'll hear me talking about how I met him. Uh, he is uh, a prevailing, enduring source of light and love and energy in my life. Uh, he's an entrepreneur. He never settles. He's always striving for better. He is Mr. Jeremy Connie. Thank you, Ben. Uh, guys, I'm so excited that Branson has become a sub-theme <laughs> in this Your Stories. Uh, I was telling Kyle, I went to Branson every year for a good six or seven years when I was a kid because my grandparents lived down there. No Yakov Smirnoff, that, that thing, go-karts, a lot of go-karts. Also happy to hear about uh, archaeology. I was in a past career, I was a civil engineer, and regularly we would have to go and get permission from the Illinois Historic Preservation Society uh, in order to do a project, in order to break ground. You have to go through that process. And most engineers would just be like, oh god, we have to check to make sure that we're not digging up things. And I was like, no, guys, it's kind of important. If there's something there, let's not tear it up. Uh, I was really excited to hear that the story theme for tonight would be homebrew and that it was uh, being hosted by Ben, one of my closest, dearest, best friends, because I have the perfect story. It was just non, not a question. <laughs> uh, so I met Ben back in college. He was my first best friend, uh, one of the closest people that I had for friends in college, met in freshman year. And one of the prevailing themes of my, or prevailing happenings in my college uh, life was that Ben would bring this, what he called peach brandy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
to, to special occasions. This would not be something that you would get on an everyday basis, not every week, not every month. It would be something that would be brought out during a very special occasion. And to be clear, this was wine. <laughs> they were not breaking Illinois distillery, distilling laws as far as I know. Uh, and it was made by him and his family. It was branded peach brandy from the Rathard Orchards, which was just his backyard. <laughs> his backyard happened to have, or his uncle's backyard happened to have a lot of peach trees. And they made peach wine out of these peach trees uh, uh, and the fruit thereof. It was wonderful. It was, at the time I was drinking Boone's Farm. <laughs> so I, I didn't, ha I haven't yet, I hadn't yet developed the palate for bitter tastes. <laughs> and it just so happened that this peach wine was the sweetest, most potent version there could be of peach wine. It was very special to me during my experience in college. And so, not too far after my college life with Ben, after when he got married um, and invited me to his wedding and invited me to be a best man at his wedding, I wanted to do something special. Uh, and when I want to do something special, I don't want to just do it, you know, a little something. And I usually don't want to do it just... I wanted, be, I wanted to be a surprise. I wanted to be really big, and I wanted to be a surprise. So in the vein of connecting on wine and homebrewed wine, I decided to make homebrewed wine myself and not just give him a bottle. I'm going to serve his wedding. <laughs> I, I had never made wine before. I'd never made good wine before. Uh, but I was like, if he could make it, I could make it. I'll, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. So that started a journey of learning. I like to learn. I like to teach myself. Uh, and in this case, I was learning how to make fruit wine, which, honestly, fruit wine is not that hard to make. I messed up plenty of times in the process. I exploded uh, Oberweiss bottles, which are not a good place to brew wine in. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, anyways, over the course of literally months of not just, uh, like, how do you make wine, but how do you, how, what's the good process to do it, what are the flavors that you could do, testing, making batches, making several batches, and then making a lot of wine because his wedding, it's not just a couple of people, it's a, it's a handful of people at this wedding. Um, I wanted to make enough to serve everybody. I finally get after, like, I'm probably like a seven month process. I get a batch of wine, probably 16 bottles of wine, full 750 milliliter bottles of wine, packed up, tasted, ready, good to go. I'm headed on my way down to, what was it, Decatur? Uh, yeah. Decatur, Illinois. Uh, on my way down I-55 with uh, 16 bottles of wine in my back seat of my car. Also not a great idea. Uh, I al also, I had not gone through like the professional level of getting actual bottling equipment. These, I had, I had just shaved the bottoms of corks and stuffed them back in. <laughs> 
bottles. So they were bottles in a box with corks like half sticking out of them. Like a good here. And I'm just like, all right, let's go. Let's go down here. Uh, and I learned a very important lesson on my way down to, uh, down to his wedding. Keep your eyes on the road. And, and don't text while you're driving. Because I was. And when I looked up from my phone and looking at a text, I saw a full tire in the road in the middle of my lane. Like, I was, on, I was down I-55, three-lane road coming out of Chicago. Traffic. Like, there were people beside me. Full tire. It wasn't, there no rim, but there was a full tire tread. And it was, I could have handled it better. <laughs> I mean, that's a fair way to put it. I could have handled it better. Uh, the, uh, I swerved. I didn't hit the tire because tires matter. Uh, overcorrected. Overcorrected again. Hit the center median. Rebounded. Across all three lanes. Turned all the way around. Landed in a ditch. Hit no one. <laughs> I had done enough swerving, I think, that everybody was like, ooh, that guy's, he's gonna have his own day. <laughs> was completely fine. My car was totaled. I was completely fine. My first thought after I was completely still was, oh my god, the wine. <laughs> uh, it was mostly fine. I had broken several bottles. Uh, and that was, in and of itself, like a, a very emotional moment for me. Uh, on top of an already emotional moment. I had gotten out of my car, just like dazed. Uh, started walking up to the road. Really quickly, a, a police officer, a state officer, had come to my aid. And... I did not put it together at the time, the fact that I had broken alcohol in my car, which meant I probably smelled like alcohol. I had no idea what was going through the policewoman's head. I don't actually know whether or not I rank of alcohol, but the situation turned out very amicably. She helped me get a tow. Uh, I got my car to the shop. I was very lucky in that my friends, Eric actually, and other people were driving down shortly after me. So I didn't have to worry about how I was getting to the wedding. I just called them, they picked me up. I had enough bottles uh, left over to serve the entire wedding, just in smaller amounts per person. Um, Thinking back on the moment that I had in talking to the people that were organizing and serving people at the place, the, the caterers or whoever's operating the house, the venue hall, I'm amazed that I rolled up with unlicensed alcohol <laughs> and said, I want to serve this to patrons in your abode. <laughs> and they said, okay. 
They didn't even bat an eye. They figured it all out. They served it in small, tiny glasses. People chose to have it or not. It was delicious. People wanted me to make more afterwards. I, I had a wonderful moment in being able to share this with Ben and Nikki as a special moment to surprise them. And it is just a, a, a moment near and dear to my heart that I want to share with you all. Thank you so much. You know, honestly, Jeremy, when you're getting married, you have a few things on your mind. And when you showed up Friday, having said, talked about the car crash and all that, I don't think I ever really fully processed everything that you went through that day at the time. Probably not until right now, tonight. Um, and that sucks. <laughs> I'm sorry that happened to you. Um, but but I, I do want you to know that two bottles uh, of it survive. Now, not, not we drank everything that night. It was delicious. Uh, but one is in my attic in storage with all my wedding stuff. And the other one sits proudly atop my parents' entertainment center. And it's got Nikki and I's faces on it that you, you, you put on the, on the bottle there. But again, what, what's again really funny here is that you, you made the labels and you stuck them right on top of the label of whatever the bottle of wine was before. <laughs> so, it's awesome. It's a wonderful memory. I, I'm so happy you did that. Um, all right, guys, we have one more speaker tonight. And he's the man of the hour. He's the guy that we're all here to see, let's say. Uh, anyway, he is the guy who does your stories, and he makes all this happen and goes into my earbuds every Monday. I don't listen to earbuds. Your headphones, man. I hate earbuds. Um, Eric is a amazing person. He is an inspiration to me. He's been through more in his life than I could hope to be through in mine. Uh, he has crafted himself into an incredible person mostly by his own hand and I am proud to say that he is one of my best friends and I talk to him regularly and I will continue to do so because he's amazing. I give you Mr. Eric Garneau. Ben's the man of the hour. Come on, give it up for Ben. Yeah. Uh, cool. I like that you put me last as though you're implicitly saying, like, this guy knows what he's doing. Nah. All right, let's get into it. Um, with apologies to Nikki in particular, I'm going to talk about Magic the Gathering for just a second, okay? Um, yes! Ben didn't mention that the name of the group that hosts this show is called the Nerdologue, so here's a bit of a Nerdologue for you. Um, in Magic the Gathering, homebrewing is a term, okay? And it is the opposite of the term netdecker. Now, I am a homebrewer, now let me tell you what that means. So homebrewers are people who take all the cards that they have and they make their own decks. Okay, let me rewind, because maybe you guys don't know what Magic the Gathering is. Magic the Gathering is a game where you pretend to be a wizard. It's the best Two, two wizards create different decks of cards to duel each other on a magical battlefield. Um, and so you have different decks of cards, and so a big part of the game is creating your own deck of 60 cards to be the best wizard. Okay, so homebrewers make their own decks. They take all the cards that they have and they sit at home and they're like, I think these cards 
are cool together. I'm gonna make this deck. Now net deckers, net deckers go on websites where there are websites about competitive Magic the Gathering. Also there's competitive Magic the Gathering. And net deckers look at decks that have done well in tournament play and they build those decks off based off the deck list online. So they just go to the store, they buy all the cards in the deck. That's their deck. I am a home brewer, mostly, and let me tell you why I feel like that's significant. To me, we're gonna get metaphysical here. This this gets it kind of one of, I feel, the crucial distinctions of how you live your life. It's love of the thing itself versus love of what the thing gets you or can bring to you, right? So homebrewers, in my estimation, love the thing. They love the cards. Homebrewing is kind of a slam in Magic. It means like, oh, this kid, he doesn't really know how the game works. He just makes stupid decks that makes himself happy. Uh, uh, this is literally just for Ben. But the kid, I think, when I think of homebrewing, uh, built decks using Tybalt, right? So, okay, Ben knows what that means. Great. Um, homebrewers typically are not great players but they are passionate players. Net deckers are highly competitive players who try to win and build esteem for themselves based on a game where you pretend to be a wizard, I guess. Um, I don't really get down with net deckers. And I, I think I have this whole thing that I'm gonna get into just a little bit about the folly of even being goal-oriented because I think, <laughs> and seriously, I think when you, when you see something and you're like, I want that, you don't understand what it is that you want. You want the results of that thing, right? My favorite author of all time uh, made this great distinction in a book he wrote. Uh, he was talking about writing comics, but I think this applies to literally everything. He goes, it is our duty to be anthropologists, not missionaries. Meaning, you have to understand the thing itself and not put your own values onto it. And, and that's what homebrewing means to me, is love of the thing itself. And why I think being goal-oriented is, is not great is because you don't understand what the thing itself is. Like, when I was younger and dumber, I wanted to be a rock star because I thought it would mean people would love me. But uh, that was totally out of my head by the time I started doing this show. And I said, like, I went on tour with this show. Uh, you guys are, like, applauding my music. Like, this makes me feel more like a rock star than anything else I've ever done. And I did it as a favor to a friend because I wanted to, yeah. right? So, maybe this sounds like garbage coming from me, but... I think I have been reasonably a successful person not being goal-oriented by being a home brewer. I just kind of do things because I want to do them and then good things happen to me. And maybe that's like coming from an immense place of privilege, but like I think about right out of college, I bought a comic book store because I wanted to. It was a terrible decision financially that no intelligent person would ever tell me to do. <laughs> But it led to me making a moderate income, managing a much better store where I learned about home brewers and net deckers. And then when I quit that job because I felt like I had maxed it out, it kind of, just by talking to a friend of mine, it led to me having this lovely job I have now at Cards Against Humanity that makes me feel incredibly fulfilled and treats me very well. And none of that was because I'm like, you know what's gonna make me rich and content? is this. It's because I want to do this with my life because I feel like this is fun. So I'm getting very preachy and so I'm gonna walk this back and make it a little more personal. I said mostly I'm a home brewer. I feel like the one place where I'm not is when it comes to relationships. All right, so now we're gonna get real. So it's June, you guys. It's June, what, 16th? 
three times this year, and it's only June 16th, three times this year, I have had this happen to me. I meet someone on OkCupid. We get super into each other for a week or two. Then they're like, you know what? You were kind of a rebound guy. I can't date anybody right now, peace. And then they leave. Three times this year that happened. And I mean, we could get into like, oh, maybe they're being reckless with their words and with their feelings and how they treat another person. That's not my story to tell. But the part of that is my story to tell is the part that like, I let them do that and I'm happy to have that happen. Like, not the end part, but the part where they're like, yeah, I want a relationship. Like, I just met you. Like, let's get into it. I let that happen because I think I'm net decking. I think I'm net decking relationships. I see this woman on OkCupid. I'm like, you know, from this screen that I'm looking at, she seems attractive and has like one or two things in common with me. Great, let's do it. That's like net decking, isn't it? And I, it's not good. And I keep letting it happen to me. And so somehow I need to figure out how to take the way that I've lived my professional life and my, most of my personal life and I need to apply that to dating, and I just, I don't know how yet. And I don't have a good end of this story. The most recent time this happened was Sunday, so I'm still processing this. Uh, yeah, that one hurt, that hurt more than most, because she promised she wouldn't do that, and then she did it. But that's okay, like I said, not my story to tell. I know she's going through stuff. I respect that. But, yeah, I don't have an ending to this, except that you guys don't be net deckers, don't be missionaries, don't be goal-oriented. Just... <laughs> Be anthropologists of your own life. Be homebrewers. Just love the thing. See where that love takes you. Let it happen. And I'm telling this to myself too. And like next time someone tells you like, hey, I really want to date you after knowing you 20 minutes. Don't listen to them. That's, that one's just for me. That one's just, that's what I got to say. Yeah. Uh, are you going to say stuff then? I don't, I don't need to step in here uh, because Eric's got the, the song uh, coming up here. But I, I do have to comment that anybody who is homebrewing with Tybalt as a planeswalker in their red deck, God bless you. Because uh, that, that is a hard road to hoe. Uh, but, but, but clearly, you got it and you're going you're gonna to use them for your best. Uh, but anyway, I'm, I'm picking up what you're laying down here. Shout out to Mario Reigns. You're the sweetest guy. Ooh. And keep, keep homebrewing. Um, let me say before we close out, uh, so first, the plugs. This is a podcast that comes out every Monday, nerdalogs.com, and on iTunes, Stitcher, all that garbage. It's called The Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories. You can hear the recording from tonight over the next two Mondays. We have done this show for seven years, so there's lots of archives. Um, it may be changing soon. I don't know. We'll talk about it later, Ben. Um, I offered Ben the show. He said he doesn't want to do this every month. Go figure. But um, I want to say, like, sincerely... First of all, thank you all for coming. This is awesome. It's so cool to be able to go to like a totally different city and have a very successful evening. Uh, thank you to Ben. Like it means the world. Ben said to me that this was like his birthday present that he got to do this. First of all, there's no get to. Like I would do this for you anytime, but that means the world to me. So thank you so much. Give it up for Ben, everybody. Um, so there's not a ton of famous musicians from Southern Illinois. <laughs> Uh, the bass player from Sting's first album was, but I don't think you guys want to hear me fumble through some of those Blue Turtle songs, so uh, <laughs> I kind of cheated a little bit. So Daryl Jones, right? Yeah. It rhymes with the name of the band he's in. Daryl Jones was a ses session musician who played with uh, the lovable lads from Liverpool, aka the Rolling Stones, um, in the 80s for an album or two. This song was not one that he played on, probably, but through the magic of I Don't Care, we're going to perform it. 
feel free to sing along. Thank you all for coming. Everyone get home safe and enjoy the great beer. came from Yesterday don't matter if it's gone While the sun is bright or in the darkest night no one knows She comes and goes is the day after my wedding anniversary, and that is one way that I have ruined Eric's birthday in the past. Uh, I, I've ruined it many times, uh, and I've also ru ruined uh, other things in the past. There's been at least two girls that we were both interested in at the same time that ended up thinking they were interested in me and they were wrong. Um, I remember one, I'm friends with one of them, 
from Becky. Oh, Becky. Yep, she counts too. So anyway, for, for that. But but at, yeah, right. Yeah, doesn't doesn't count. Don't worry about it. Um, but but I have my my two closest dad friends, Kyle, Tony, uh, also happen to be extremely talented musicians uh, that I have the pleasure of knowing not on a level of fandom like, I mean, uh, you guys are incredible but I know you as people, which is great uh, for, for that, and I'm super, super duper happy about that. If that that's true, that was fun uh, Yeah, good times in the garage uh, Anyway, uh, Eric, for your birthday we are playing a few songs in your honor, sir. What? Yes. Uh, and again, when we say playing, they're playing. I'm singing. That's that's easy. Uh, so for, for that. Um, this is your birthday. I had mine. Can, can, I, can I add something? Please. Real quick? Yes. I have to say, though, this is probably more fun for me than anyone else because I got to have two of my best friends over on my back porch drinking beers and playing music the other night. And I don't get to do that enough. And when Ben called and was like, we need to practice, I said, Yes, we do. Very much. <laughs> I have beer in the fridge and guitars that need to be played. And so we sat on my back porch for hours the other night. And I thought, there's no way that anyone else is getting more out of this than me. This yeah, that's, is that's, hey, that's awesome. not true. Because I think I've known Kyle like six or seven years now. <laughs> yep. And we have never played music together. This Ooh, is except wow. for, yeah, it's the very first time. So very happy. Thank you for the opportunity <laughs> to do all of this. All yep. right. Cool. Uh, I, I'm, I'm just I'm going to count us in. That's, that's all right. Good. So. One, two, three. Well, they blew up the chicken man in Philly last night, and they blew up his house too. Down on the boardwalk, they're getting ready for a fight. Gonna see what them racket boys can do. Now there's trouble bussing in from out of state, and the DA can't get no relief. They're getting ready for a rumble. Promenade and the gambling commission's holding on by the skin of its teeth. Oh, everything dies, honey, that's a fact. But maybe everything that dies someday comes back. And put your makeup on, fix your hair real pretty, and meet me tonight in Atlantic City. City bus, oh, everything dies, honey, that's a fact. But maybe everything that dies someday comes back. Jamaica ball, fix your hair and pray, and meet me tonight in Atlantic City. Everything that dies, 
someday comes back Jamaica Ball Put your hair real pretty And meet me tonight And I'll let it say Guys, these guys make idiots like me sound good. Uh, it's the best I could hope for. Uh, okay, so Atlantic City, I played that because for a number of reasons. Uh, the coal mines in Southern Illinois are all gone. Maybe for the better, I don't know. But you know, the jobs are gone, the economy's nothing. Is anything ever gonna come here? I don't know. But everything that dies someday comes back? I don't know. I optimistic, but Eric, I think of you when I sing Atlantic City, and it is one of my favorite Bruce songs. In, in, in case for anybody out there who could possibly not know this, who listened to this song, this podcast, but maybe not. Uh, Bruce Springsteen is Eric's favorite performer of all time, and we are we are playing some Bruce songs tonight for that reason. Uh, but I couldn't leave it at that. Atlantic City is a is a kind of a stark song, and we've got to we've got to go on a little bit more of a positive note tonight. So, gentlemen.
Happy birthday, Eric. Happy birthday, Eric. Happy birthday, Ben. This podcast has been produced in association with the Nerdalogs. To find out more about the Nerdalogs and their shows, visit www.nerdalogs.com or facebook.com slash nerdalogs. Thanks for listening. <laughs>